Let's open up to Isaiah chapter 15. And in all honesty, this is a very difficult section of scripture to teach. You know, sometimes when you're going through the Bible, I mean, it's really easy. It almost teaches itself and you're so excited about it. But tonight, as we're going through Isaiah 15, 16, and 17, we're going to be talking about the judgment of uh, Edom and the, and the judgment of Syria and the judgment of Israel and even at the end, the judgment of Assyria. And so, um, you know, you're, you're reading through it. And um, so it really, it, it took me a lot. I was struggling and studying and researching and, man, just trying to find uh, good things to make it uh, helpful for tonight. And, and so it, if I pray, you guys would know that no matter what chapter you're in in the Bible, that it's profitable, that it's there, it's inspired by God, it's going to be good for us even chapters like this. And so let me begin by saying this, as we're talking about the judgment of God on Moab and the judgment of God on, uh, on Israel and, uh, and Syria and Assyria, number one, let me just say this, that you got to make sure that you have a relationship with God. Because if you don't, one day you'll stand before him as the judge. So that's where it starts. You know, hopefully uh, all of you have that relationship with God. Like I was talking about earlier, when the great you know, awakening came in the 1720s, I mean, there, it was a time where not only were a lot of people in church unsaved, but a lot of pastors were unsaved. And so you really have to check your heart. And so we start there. But then number two is this, that, that you want to make sure that, Lord, use my life. Use my life so that I can be instrumental, hopefully, in helping others not be judged. Because in all reality, I think that's really what it's all about for me to live as Christ. Lord, how can you use my life to bring you glory? Lord, how can you use my life to keep people from going to hell? Because you read stuff like this and you realize this is real. One day God is going to judge the world and it surely seems like it's going to be soon. And so... We're going to see that in our study today. We're actually going to begin with a few maps just to kind of give you a visual. And so I think we have some maps that I want to show you. And basically, um, when you look at, like, for example, the map on the left right here, uh, you see Israel and Judah more towards the uh, west coast. And even today, that's modern day Israel and Judah. You have the Gaza Strip on that side. But then, can you guys see where Moab is right here? It's just east of the Dead Sea. That's where um, chapters 15 and 16 are going to be all about. And then, if you look at the bottom of the Dead Sea, you can't see it on the map right there, but that's where that city Zoar is. And just in case, and I want to just, in case you guys are interested, if you want the maps and things like that, because I'll be honest, it's hard to find good maps. Uh, just send me an email or send my wife an email if you're a sister, and we'll send you the maps and we'll send you the notes. And so this way you know where Moab is, more or less. It's just on the other side of the Dead Sea. It's east of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, and you can see it. This second map is not as good. And then if you go up north on this middle map right here, you can see where Syria is. And you'll see right on the top right there is Damascus. And so that'll be uh, applicable to us when we get to chapter 17 of uh, our study tonight. And I think we might have one more map. And this one is, um, is not as good. But the thing I like about it, you'll see that it's honed in on the uh, next to the Dead Sea, this is like the big picture, that's the more uh, up-close picture, is you see all the different cities. 
And, um, you know, I, I don't know about you, but for me, I'm more of like a visual type of person. And as I'm reading all these cities and they're saying, hey, they can hear them wailing from here to there at 16 miles or whatever, that's north and that's south. It actually helps me as I'm going through uh, and studying the Bible. And so um, we're not 100% sure on all the cities, but they have some pretty good inclinations of where they are. Because watch, we just dive into it. Look at verse 1 of Isaiah 15. It says, The burden against Moab, because in the night, Ar of Moab, and that's a city, is laid waste and destroyed. Because in the night, and this is another city, Kir of Moab, is laid waste and destroyed. He has gone up to the, the temple and, and Debon, and to the high places to weep, Moab will, will wail. And that means it's an extensive high-pitched cry of pain, grief, sometimes anger. You guys know wailing, right? That's uh, intense. They're going to wail over Nebo and over Mediba. These are other cities. And all their heads will be baldness, not because of a receding hairline, right? But because of their inexpressible sorrow. You know, you, you read this and you might detach yourself from it because you're just reading it, but you have to put yourself in a place where you, all your loved ones are getting slaughtered. That's why they're shaving their head. That's why they're, they're cutting their beard. It says, in every beard cut off in their streets, they will clothe themselves with sackcloth on the tops of their houses and in their streets. Everyone will wail, weeping bitterly. And here's the thing that we have to consider that, you know, when you talk about like the judgment of God and especially in the last of the last days when Jesus Christ comes and smites the earth, I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah, they're slaughtered here, but then where do they go? They go to another place where they weep and they mourn. And so, you know, for us looking at this, it's, it's heavy. That's why verse 1, it's called the burden against Moab because it was heavy we're going to see on the prophet Isaiah you know God would use the nation of Assyria as his weapon for judgment upon Moab and just in case you're wondering when it happened in 732 BC and there were actually other other instances later I think 701 BC uh, God would deal with this nation now I remember one time I don't know if any of you homeschoolers went with us we did a field trip um, to this place, I think it's in L.A. area, and they had like a lot of uh, uh, articles like from Jerusalem and stuff, and they had sackcloth there. Have you guys ever tried on sackcloth? I'm just curious. Who here has tried on sackcloth? I'm just, nobody here. Oh, we got to get some. It's crazy. It's crazy what it does to your body and just the, the irritation of it. So imagine shaving your head, cutting your beards, which in those days was uh, humiliating and shameful, and mourning and griefing and wailing and all these things, wearing sackcloth. Can you imagine the heartache that they were experiencing? You know, if we read in verse 4 that Heshbon and Elieleh will cry out, and their voices shall be heard as far as Jahez, and so that's 16 miles away, and therefore the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out, his life will be burdensome to him. And so we actually have a map of that one, and uh, I don't know, I just, if you guys can check it out, it has the, the city circled, and it has a little area that you see the distance. So in one city, they're wailing, they're crying out, 
And in the other city, it is so loud, it's so thunderous that they can hear their cries. And so um, verse 5 is interesting because the only time we see Isaiah do it, he says, my heart will cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee to Zoar. And Zoar, like I said, is just underneath the Dead Sea. So it's just outside of Moab. Some say in the Edom area, just underneath the Dead Sea. My heart will cry out for Moab. Uh, His fugitives shall flee to Zoar like a three-year-old heifer. For by the ascent of Luhith, they will go up with weeping. For in the way of Horonaim, they will raise up a cry of destruction. And so, you know, when we're talking about judgment, when we're talking about like things like maybe hell and the lake of fire, you got to understand that it's not coming from, you know, we're, we're mad at you. And I, because every once in a while, I'll see a Christian with that, with that, yeah, God's going to get them. And they, and they talk so negative and so mean towards a non-believer. And, and, you know, you, you got to be really careful. Right, here's Isaiah knowing that Moab deserves judgment, but notice it says in verse 5 that his heart is crying out for them. My heart will cry out for Moab. So Kylan Dalich is a really good Old Testament commentary, and he said, there is no other prophecy in the book of Isaiah in which the heart of the prophet is so painfully affected by what his mind sees and his, ha- his mouth is obliged to prophesy. All that he predicts evokes his deepest sympathy, just as if he himself belonged to the unfortunate nation to which he is called to be a messenger of woe. And so, again, here's Israel, here's the Dead Sea, then there's Moab. It would be kind of like, and I know this is probably not the best comparison, but you know, you find out that you're a prophet to Canada. And you're here and you have to say, you know, Canada, you're going to get wiped out. Your people will be slaughtered, you know, or maybe Mexico, Mexico. Imagine how that would break your heart. Well, that's where Isaiah is. Messages of judgment. They have their origin really, though, in, in love. And so we need to make sure we have that heart. My heart cries out for these people who are going to get you know, judged. I think it was C.H. Spurgeon who said something to the effect that when we speak of heaven, there should be a glisten in our eyes and a smile on our face. But when we speak of hell, let there be a tear in our eyes and a touch of pain in our hearts. And so we can see them fleeing to Zoar here. Isaiah says something interesting. He describes it as this three-year-old heifer. His fugitives shall flee to Zoar, like a three-year-old heifer. And basically what that refers to is a full-grown heifer. Um, And what we find, they tell us that these animals that are female have a a deeper and more affecting uh, low than a male. And so just again, it's just heartache upon heartache. Verse 6, he says, For the waters of Nimrim will be desolate, for the, the green grass has withered away. The grass fails. There is nothing green. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and, and what they have laid up, they will carry away to the brook of the willows, for the cry has gone all around the borders of Moab. It's wailing to Eglame and it's wailing to Beer Elim, for the waters of Demon will be full of blood, 
because I will bring more upon Demon and lions upon him who escapes from Moab and on the remnant of the land. And so just, um, you know, imagine, I, I remember one time I went to um, Washington, the state of Washington, and I spent the summer there, and it rained the whole summer. It was the whole summer I was there. And it was, but it was so green, so beautiful. And so apparently this area was known for this, how beautifully green it was, but now it's not. I mean, he says right here, there's nothing green. It's all withered away. Verse 7 basically says that when they run away, they can only take what they can carry. Imagine if you one day you had to flee and all you could take was what you could carry. That's what was going on in, in Moab. You know, right here, it talks about the waters of Demon. You're thinking, oh, there is water, but the waters are full of blood. So many people are being slaughtered. You know, the Bible talks about how when Jesus comes, that there's going to be the whole valley of Megiddo filled with bodies slain four feet deep. This is real stuff. This happens. You know, they're, they're full of blood, and, and it's not done, really. He says, and, and by the way, and just in case you think it's over, lions are going to actually attack those who escape from Moab and even those who remained, the remnant in the land. And so it's, it's heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. And verse 1 of chapter 16, he continues to talk to, to Moab, but it's interesting, you guys, and watch what he says here in verse 1. He says, send the lamb to the ruler of the land. From Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Now, this is interesting. What's he talking about here? Send the lamb to the ruler of the land. Um, Let me ask you guys this. What's Zion? Jerusalem. And so he's asking the guys from Moab, Selah, Petra, to send the lamb to Jerusalem. And that's kind of interesting how he starts there in verse 1, and he says in verse 2, For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest, so shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. And so he says, Take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day, hide the outcasts, do not betray him who escapes. And so... You just do a little bit of research into the history of the relationship between Moab and Israel, and it's pretty interesting. You guys know who is the father of the Jews? You guys know? Abraham, right? And Abraham's nephew, you guys remember that guy that went out of Sodom and Gomorrah? What's his name? Lot. Do you remember Lot's, Lot had two daughters, and they had two nations from his two daughters? Do you remember who, that, who they were? The Ammonites and the Moabites. Now, it's interesting. There, there is a certain relationship here. Lot's descendants should have known the favor that God had upon Abraham. Now, it's interesting as you get into the lineage and the, and the, and the rule of David, Moab paid tribute to David. They paid tribute to Solomon. But as time progressed, they rebelled against their leadership. As a matter of fact, if you read 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 1, it says Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And then 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, it says, Now Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. 
But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. In other words, he did no longer give to them the lambs. It's kind of like distancing himself from Israel and in one sense, distancing himself, distancing himself from the God of Israel. Because we, in the United States of America, we love the God of Israel, right? That's the one true God. And so kind of what we see right here is really interesting. Uh, Isaiah counsels them to, to send the lamb to the, to the ruler of the land that it would be good for them to align themselves with Israel, or in this case, Judah, especially Judah's God. You know, Moab would need that type of power. But we see that they didn't. And then what happens as we go through here, in the blink of an eye, and you guys know that's how prophecy works, God shifts gears and he catapults into the future, and it's good for us to know these things Look what he says in verse 4. He says, Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. That's one who ravages or destroys. For the extortioner or the oppressor, one who forces others, is at an end. That's the devil. That's the devil. And he's about to end. That's what you read in this verse right here. Devastation ceases, the oppressors are consumed out of the land. And you're like, what's he talking about? What's he talking about? And, and what we find right here is something interesting. I will say this if you have an NIV or an NLT, they get this one wrong. Okay, so sometimes I read the NLT and I'm like, yes, I love it, it's easy to understand or the NIV, or whatever. And they don't always get it wrong, but this time they do. Because in the Hebrew is the word my. And for some reason, the NIV and the NLT, they don't have that. Because where it says in verse 4, four let my outcasts dwell with you. Who's, talk, who's speaking? God is. Who are his people? Israel. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the devil. That's what he's saying. Because the devil is about to end. He's in his last days and he knows his time is short. And he will come against Israel. And we know what happens halfway through the tribulation period. Right? That's what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 15 through 16. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee, flee to the mountains. Because when the tribulation period first starts, the Jews are going to think that the Antichrist is their savior. They're going to kind of embrace him as their Messiah. But halfway through, he goes into the temple, he presents himself as God, he shows his true colors, and it's at that point that he's going to turn on Israel, and we're going to see that they're going to flee to Petra, which is modern-day Jordan. And that's what he's talking about right here. As a matter of fact, maybe it'd be good for us to go to Revelation uh, chapter 12. In verse 1, 
It says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now this reminds us of the dream that Joseph had, right, back in the book of Genesis. And it's not Mary, because some people think, oh, the woman is Mary. No, it's a, it's a picture of Israel, right? And so this is Israel, verse 1. And then being with child... She cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Who's that child? Jesus, capital C, right in my Bible. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. That's the, the, those are the fallen angels. We now know them as demons, right? And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And so let me tell you something, man. The devil has always desired to devour the child. Man, from day one all the way to the end, right? So it says in verse 5 that she bore a male child, that's Jesus, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. And so after Jesus died and rose again, he ascended into heaven. But look what we read in verse 6. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And in the Jewish calendar, that comes out to three and a half years. And that's kind of what we read Back in, in the book of Isaiah, the interesting thing is then it says war broke out and Satan was thrown out. And what we find is that God at this point is going to defeat the enemy and he's going to raise up Christ to be the ruler of all. If you go back to uh, the book of Isaiah, because here it mentions the male child who will rule, we see it in Isaiah. In the very next verse of Isaiah chapter 16, we see it in verse 5. In mercy, the throne will be established, verse 17, in chapter 17, and the one will sit on it with truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. And so who can this be? It has to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's none other than Jesus, and we see even the order of events outlined there in the book of Isaiah. Interesting to me, you know, as things are getting all lined up for us, it's amazing to be able to go through the book of Isaiah. And I was telling my wife on the way over here, like even in the chapters on judgment, you know, he's still talking about Jesus, still giving us prophecies about Jesus. But then he flips back over in verse 6, and it says, We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath, but his lies shall not be so, meaning their arrogance will all be gone if they don't humble themselves. And so one commentator mentioned this, because we're talking about the judgment of Moab, right? But why? Why? Why are they getting judged? You know, when you look at the judgment of Israel and it gives all the details of what they did wrong, so far we haven't heard of anything that Moab's done wrong, really. Not in the context here, but now Isaiah reveals what it is. Why are they being judged? 
their pride. Their pride. We have heard of the pride of Moab. And you know, of course, I'm sure there were other sins because we know that pride is the root of all sin. I mean, who would have the audacity to tell God, well, I know you said I'm supposed to do this, but I'm going to do that. That's pride. Moab here is definitely rooted in pride. We have to be aware of pride, you guys. I think we all struggle with it, so we constantly have to take up our cross. We constantly have to humble ourselves. You know, no matter what the situation is, never think you're better than anyone else. You know, one person said, beware of pride. Never be proud of face or race or place. Or even grace. It was C.H. Spurgeon who said that. It wasn't me, my dorky rhymes. It was actually C.H. Spurgeon. <laughs> and so, you know, we just have to humble ourselves and just consider others better than us. Beware of pride. George Herbert said, He who sings his own praise is usually off key. And D.L. Moody said, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. And that, that's Moab. You know, we're, we're talking about how you should have sent them a lamb, Lot. You should have never left Abraham. I mean, you knew, Lot, that God had found, Abraham had found favor with God. Why didn't you stick with this God and descendants and teach them and stay on track? And it just, man, it just, this man messed up the family. And next thing you know, they're so distant. And, and, and what we find is that they then felt, well, we don't, we don't need God. I mean, pride will keep us from coming to Jesus Christ. You know, I remember that story in 2 Kings 5. Uh, you guys might remember when Naaman the Syrian uh, was, a, was a leper and they had, you know, I guess they somehow got a servant girl from Israel and the servant girl from Israel said, hey, if this guy right here would only go to Israel, um, you know, he could be healed by Elisha the prophet and so Naaman went to Elisha, and Elisha said, well, this is what you've got to do. If you want to get healed, you've got to go wash in the Jordan seven times. And so Naaman was furious. He's like, man, there's way better rivers you know, in my land. He wants me to go wash. I figured he would just heal me. He would just speak it over me. Why would I have to go wash? And so he was about to go home until one of the guys, thank God, he gave him some good counsel. He's like, well, what's the big deal? Humble yourself. Humble yourself. And you go and you dip in the Jordan seven times. Thank God he humbled himself. Thank God he didn't hold to his pride. Because the pride will ruin us. It'll ruin us. And he went and he, you know, he was cleansed. You know, I, I trip out talking to people, you know, and, you know, you share with them. And for whatever reason, they think they're good enough that they don't need to go to church. They don't need Jesus. That's pride. And that's what we see happen to Moab. You know, pride is something, unfortunately, that we struggle with as a nation. And I know we all struggle with it, but our nation seems to be proud of their pride. Huh? That's where we are now. Uh, as a matter of fact, we have parades about pride. I think we have a visual here of a parade that took place, I think it was about four years ago. Look at all those people. Look at the rainbow flag. It's a gay pride parade. And they have all these things that they're so proud of their pride. They have parade month. They have a parade library. They have all these different things about their pride. 
And then I feel like when I'm reading about Moab, how God says, I'm going to judge Moab because I've heard of your pride. That we, we can identify with this. God says it's wrong. We love you. But God says it's wrong. But you say it's right. Well, I'm going to follow God. Because I, I got to humble myself. You know, where was I when I made the world? I wasn't there. God's the one who made it. You know, unfortunately, Moab wasn't willing to humble themselves. So we read in verse 7, Therefore Moab shall wail for Moab. Everyone shall wail for the foundations of Ker, Hereseth. You shall mourn. Surely they are stricken. For, for the fields of Heshbon languish and the vine of Sibma. He now kind of paints a picture of the vine spreading throughout the whole country. And look what happens. The Lord of the nations have broken down its choice plants, which have reached to Jazer and wandered through the wilderness. Her, her branches are stretched out. They are gone over the sea. Therefore, I will bewail the vine of Sibma with the weeping of Jazer. I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Elialaph, for... Battle cries have fallen over your summer fruits and your plenty fulfilled. In the vineyards there will be no singing, nor will there be shouting. No treaders will tread out wine in the presses. I have made their shouting cease. And I think that if you look at our nation today, they're having fun, huh? They're enjoying themselves. We are the capital of entertainment. We have places you can go and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, uh, the, the supplies of fruit and, and everything is there. We are just so blessed with all that. But, man, imagine the day coming when God, that, it's all taken away. And it begins in the tribulation period. We're going to see that. The prophet here visualizes this. The ripened fruit will not be trodden underfoot in the winepress because judgment will stalk the land. And so he says in verse 11, Therefore my heart shall resound like a harp for Moab and my inner being for Ker Heres. See how Isaiah does that again? He, he's, his heart is, is breaking for Moab. And it shall come to pass when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place that he will come to his sanctuary to pray, but he will not prevail. Again, Isaiah's heart is heavy. Notice he says it, it'll resound like a harp. And so, you know, all musicians know the strumming of a sad song, the, you know, the minor notes, so to speak. Uh, this is beyond that, the way beyond the blues or that country song, you know, where his baby left him. This is way beyond that. This is absolutely indescribable mourning from the inner being. And, and the thing that breaks your heart, it says there in verse 12, that rather, rather than turning to the true God, they begin to worship their false God, the God of uh, Chemosh, or Chemosh, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. And he says right there, the, he comes to the sanctuary, his sanctuary to pray, but he will not prevail. Now, this brings up something else that I wanted to share a little bit on. You know, when you read the Bible, it's probably helpful to look at all the different nations and all the different gods they had. Moab had the god of, of Chemosh, and I don't know, they have, it looks pretty crazy. Look at that. It almost looks like some of these uh, movies we see, huh? the villain or whatever, you know. 
And you, you look at something like that and you're like, well, how can they not see that's bad? But it's because they're blind. And so Chemosh, um, let me read to you a few things about this God that they worshipped that was absolutely no help when the time came. It was actually introduced into Israelite culture by King Solomon, who had wives that turned his heart to other gods. That's 1 Kings 11, 4 through 7. He was a national deity of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now remember, those were the two descendants of Lot, right? And so, um, according to the Moabite stone, there's a, there's a Melsha stele. There is, there is also evidence that, that both from the Moabite stone and the scriptures that Chemosh may have been the same deity as the Ammonite god Molech. Now, you guys probably are more familiar with Molech, right? That was the one that they would heat up the arms or they would throw their babies into the fire. And that's why we see that right here in the second picture of that... Um, of Chemosh, see the fire right there? They bring their kids up the stairs and they throw them into the fire. See, abortion is not new. It's not unique to our generation. Every sin that we see, especially those ones that are prevalent in society, they have their roots in, I believe, probably certain demons that are spearheading the way. And so when you're looking at the, the judgment of Moab, you know, whatever you do, I mean, don't think, well, you know, are you sure they're worthy to be slaughtered? Well, when you see stuff like this, you realize it is. I thank God for judges. You know, I don't know if you guys heard about um, what happened with the former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, so that many women are coming forward and saying that he sexually harassed them. And there were up to this point allegations. Now there's formal charges that are being filed against him. And he's going to have to stand before the judge. Because he, you know, who does he think he is? He's a governor putting his hand under some girl's blouse and doing his thing. He can't do that. He's going to have to stand before the judge. You know, and the same thing I was thinking about, um, you know, not all judges are, are perfect. I understand we don't live in a perfect system or anything, but I was thinking about how um, this even uh, the situation where Alec Baldwin, um, I guess there was a movie set and uh, uh, somehow this gun that's not supposed to have any bullets in it had a bullet in it and he shot it and he killed somebody. So, you know, you might just think, well, it's maybe somebody's mistake and, you know, I'm sure it was an oversight. How did that happen? How did that bullet get into that gun? to kill somebody. Well, they're going to do an investigation. And I hope and pray they find out exactly how that happened because somebody died. So, again, just thinking of judges and thinking of justice, thinking of what's going on here, what's going on in our world. You know, I've told you guys many times that we are ripe for judgment. You know, not only that, when you look at the history of Moab and just so many things that they did, you know, they were the ones responsible, you know, for the Israelites' uh, sexual worship of their idols and the lustful orgies in Numbers 25. And there's just a lot of things that we see here that we begin to understand as we read. You know, verse 13, it says, This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. 
But now the Lord has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised with all that great multitude, and the remnant will be very small and feeble. And so, you know, when Isaiah does the prophecy, um, within three years, I wonder if any of the Moabites, like, trembled, you know? I wonder if they, they said, you know what, I got to get my life right. And, and as I'm sharing, I'm not Isaiah by any, by any means, but, you know, I think we've been hearing it from a lot of different pastors and preachers and stuff, that it sure seems like the Lord is coming soon. And so my concept or perception of the church, generally speaking, is they are asleep. And there needs to be a great awakening. There needs to be a return to holiness. Some people are doing things that clearly violate scripture. And then they come in and they serve. And they sit. And that's wrong. We have to have a healthy fear of God. Because let me tell you something. The Bible says that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And so we have to make sure we're right. You know, um, the Lord will show you the divine details, but I know um, a lot of time in the Bible, you start reading that Bible, a lot of time in that Bible, soaking yourself in the scriptures, having a desire to live that word, live it out, live it out, growing whatever roles and responsibilities you have, faithful in your service, seeing that the days are short. Now, I wonder if they listened to Isaiah talks about the years of a hired man right here. And, you know, some say, well, it's probably because there was a contract between the laborer and his master, but more than likely that's in reference to a mercenary soldier who was hired. And that's what they would do in those days. They would hire the soldiers, uh, and that's what God did in one sense uh, with Assyria, and they wiped out Moab. And so real quick, uh, chapter 17 it says in verse 1, the burden against Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. The cities of Er or are forsaken. They will be for flocks which lie down and no one will make them afraid. So imagine you have some sheep and they're lying down and they're not afraid of anyone because there's no one there. And so that's what he's saying. The fortress also will cease from Ephraim. Now, now Ephraim is a reference to Israel. That's the northern kingdom. So he's talking about judgment on, on uh, Syria, Damascus, as well as Israel. The kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria, they will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. Now, real quick, we don't have a lot of time, but um, what happened was Israel and Syria, they were trying to get Judah to help them uh, in their fight against Assyria, and they rather than looking to the Lord. And so God here is judging uh, Syria and Israel. It says in verse 4, In that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob will wane, and the fatness of his flesh grow lean. He's going to get super skinny. It shall be as when the harvesters gather the grain and reaps the heads of his, with his arm. It shall be as he who gathers heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim, yet gleaning grapes will be left in it, like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives at the top of the uppermost bough. 
4 or 5 in its most fruitful branches says the Lord God of Israel. And so in those days when they gathered sheaves, they would you know, put their arms and they would try their best to get everything they can out of it. And he's saying that it doesn't matter how hard you try, you know, that you know, you're trying to get everything so there's almost like nothing to glean. God is saying you're going to get the leftovers. You're going to get the scraps. You're going to get what's gleaned. And you wonder, well, why, Lord? Why do we, my skin and bones? Why is this happening? Why does God do this to us and even to his people? Why? Why does God discipline? Because he wants to turn us back to him. And not just halfway. All the way, guys. All the way. You know, to where, and I don't know if you guys, how you feel about this, but I will tell you this, that, you know, you know how you have, Ryan Reese, when he was here, he talked a little bit about this. I don't think it was the same, you know, thing exactly. But you know how it is when you have the connection, the Wi-Fi connection? And you know how sometimes you don't? And you go, you're at home and your guys are just dying because there's no Wi-Fi connection. <laughs> well, I do believe that when I, as a Christian, I'll tell you this, ever since the day I got <laughs> saved, August 20th, 1989. I'm not saying it's been perfect, but I have lived in the perpetual presence of God. Always. I don't take a day off. There's not moments where like, okay, God, now you're here, now you're not. No, there's always that Wi-Fi connection. I think it was Elijah who said the Bible's the router or something like that. Yeah. (laughs) That's what you got to be in the word. You know, I mean, it's cool coming to church. You guys got to come. But you also have to be in the word. Look at it. He wants to turn us back in verse 7. In that day, a man will look to his maker and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. You know, to me, that makes sense. Well, who made me? That's the one that I want to know. And, and, you know, even though they're in discipline and even though they're locked up in prison, some of those guys, they're locked up in prison. They find the Lord there. And that's what he's saying. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. He will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. If you go to Israel with us, we will visit the altar that Dan, the altar of Dan, there in the northern part of Israel. Because when Israel broke off from Judah, they created these two altars, one in Dan and one in Bethel. And then God says, enough. This is what he's saying. No more superficial religion. In that day, his strong cities will be as a, as a forsaken bough and an uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel. And there will be desolation. Why? Because verse 10, you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold. Therefore, you will plant pleasant plants and set out fair seedlings. In the day, you will make your plant to grow. And in the morning, you will make your seed to flourish. Looks good, but the harvest will be a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. Don't forget God. Don't forget what he's done for you. And then Isaiah just shifts gears again. So we've talked about judging Moab and judging Damascus and Syria, judging Israel. Now he actually gets to the big nation, Assyria, 
in verse 12. It says, Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters. You know, have you guys seen those movies where those floods come in and they just wipe out these islands or something? That's kind of what he's describing. But God will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Then behold, at eventide, trouble, and before the morning, he is no more. This is the portion of those who plunder us. Now he's talking about Israel and the lot of those who rob us. And so in the end, and we'll see it, we see it in Jeremiah 2, God gets Babylon, God gets Assyria, God is going to deal with every single nation. And so real quick application. J.I. Packer said, there are a few things stressed more strongly in the Bible than the reality of God's work as judge. And so it's kind of cool, even going through difficult chapters like this, that those things get settled in our hearts. God is Savior. God is gracious. God is forgiving. But God is holy. And God is judge. And so you have the messages of damnation are actually intended for salvation. That's kind of why he wrote this. And that's why uh, I close today with the, the amazing work of what Jonathan Edwards did and, you know, that great awakening. And I, I don't know, I have a feeling that's probably too late, but you never give up. And it all started when Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon. And I don't know if you guys knew this, but I have the notes. And you guys, if you ever can check out the, the, the sermon, it's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Okay, Jonathan Edwards, uh, he, he wrote a thousand sermons. Only 12 of them dealt with judgment. So it wasn't something that he talked about all the time. And it says that when he preached that night, that he was, he was monotone. And he was just looking at the walls. But as he started to preach about judgment, all of a sudden people started to, to scream. People started to grab to the poles thinking that they were being pulled into the fire. I'll, I'll read to you one of the things he, he wrote. He says in Deuteronomy 32, 35, their foot shall slide in due time. O sinner, consider the fearful danger. The unconverted are now walking over the pit of hell on a rotten covering, and there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that it will not bear their weight, and these places are not even seen. He says, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come, the wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Heavy. And he goes on and he says a lot of uh, other things. And again, you know, why, you know, does God allow these sermons on judgment? And I think because he wants us, not only for us to get right, Lord, you know, I want to, Strengthen my relationship with you. If you don't know him, then today's the day of salvation. But I think most of you here do know the Lord. And so you have to ask yourself this question. Are you letting God use your life to pull other people out of hell? That's kind of what we see. And so just in case you're here and you are struggling or maybe you're watching online and you don't know the Lord, what do you do? Well, you got to come to Jesus. You have to trust in Jesus. Even if you consider the name of this book that we're studying, 
the book of Isaiah, it means that you know God is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. So if you haven't already, or if you haven't completely done this, come to Jesus tonight.